This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. In the next 19 seconds, you could sell your home. Okay, it's, I mean, it's not going to sell your home, I mean, this, but it, you're going to take a big step toward getting it sold. Go to realestateagentsitrust.com and find an agent selected by my team, a professional who shares your values and speaks the truth. Sell your home fast and for the most money. Get moving at realestateagentsitrust.com. The Jay Severin Show. Let's get the basics down. I'm Jay Severin. You are the best and brightest. We are live. We are together, the Blaze Radio Network. The complaint line, though it has still never been used for that purpose, but remains open and fully funded, nevertheless. Privately funded. 1-888-900-3393. 1-888-900-3393. Now, at this point, I would usually announce the Twitter address, which I'm going to go ahead and do. At J-A-Y, little underscore hickey, S-E-V-E-R-I-N. But today an asterisk, a big one. This is a Hillary magnitude asterisk. I as is my want, I hope not entirely unwelcome, will illustrate my message with a short story. In the epic World War II film, In Harm's Way, starring John Wayne and everybody, John Wayne, Kirk Douglas, Burgess, Barrett, uh, Burgess Meredith, uh, just, just about everybody you can name who was in films then and for the next 30 years. In Harm's Way. One, to me, perhaps the best war movie ever made. And again, like good war movies, like any good movie, it's not singularly and technically about something. There are very few battle scenes in a good war movie. I mean, there are exceptions. Black Hawk Down, I am told by my combat friends, is uh, superior even to Saving Private Ryan. Uh, Saving Private Ryan's uh, opening scene uh, of D-Day. Because you really have, over the scope of two hours, the full range of contemporary combat circumstances. But... With those rare exceptions, great war movies do not have a lot of combat in them. What they have is strategy. What they have is they are more about the psychology of war. They are about what it's like to live in a time of war. In Harm's Way, I recommend it as highly as I could any film to you. In Harm's Way is an epic 
beautiful, frightening, heartening roller coaster of imagination and sentiment, human emotion, having to do with what it's like to live and serve or not serve during a time that was all-consuming of war. What life was like, not just for the combatants, but for those who yearned to be, but weren't, those in uniform but not in combat, those in combat who wished they weren't, the families of those in combat. In Harm's Way contains a scene early on derivative of Pearl Harbor uh, and and Pearl Harbor Day. <clears throat> and and in it one ship is is crippled by a Japanese torpedo and another American ship pulls alongside and for reasons of the chaos of that morning Pearl Harbor a lot of captains, a lot of regular crew, well, of course, died on their ships. Or, as it was a Sunday morning, very early, they were, many of them, at church services. Or, if they were bunking in on the island with mistresses, with uh, buddies, with still out, drinking beer, 6 o'clock in the morning, a lot of them did not make it to their ships. Unfortunately, many did, but many did not. And a lot of those were upper echelon rank, flag rank in many cases. So, in the movie, In Harm's Way, one senior officer, John Wayne, has his ship, sorties it, gets it out of Pearl, and is cruising some miles off Pearl, waiting to see who else gets out of the harbor, and to assemble into a task force what's left of our fleet. They don't know at the time that there's virtually nothing left of our fleet. Eight battleships. Eight battleships. All sunk in port. Thousands of men dead in their racks. Never knew what hit them. In any case, in this scene, the tag-along vessel, so to speak, pulls up to John Wayne's command ship, which is a larger ship. Communications are out, but there's also a communications blackout, radio silence. Because if there are subs in the area, which obviously there are, uh, you know, there's a communications blackout. So they communicate by bullhorn, believe it or not. And, and not even the electronic kind, not the Al Sharpton kind. This is the old-fashioned cheerleader, conical, cardboard, yell through the end, just yell through the end. And John Wayne says, Ahoy, uh, who's, who am I, who, who, who's, who's in charge? I forgot the actual line. And the guy answers, uh, Lieutenant J.G. McConnell, sir, because by virtue of accident, the highest rank on that ship, the tagging ship, 
was a lieutenant junior grade. Well, obviously, unheard of for a lieutenant JG to be in command of even a rowboat. So John Wayne shouts back, did I hear lieutenant junior grade? Comes back, yes, sir, McConnell. John Wayne thinks for a second and he says, McConnell, do I know you? McConnell responds, John J.G. McConnell, sir, class of 38. Which, of course, could mean only one thing. That means he's Annapolis, U.S. Naval Academy, class of 38. And the John Wayne character had been, which they drop earlier on you, had been an instructor. He was third generation Navy, and he had been, which means third generation Academy. He had been in the Navy all his life. And there's this glimmer of recognition when John Wayne hears McConnell class of 38 because he was one of his students. McConnell had been one of John Wayne's students. And there's just glimmer of recognition and Wayne says, John Wayne says, oh, yeah, McConnell. And it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an affirmative recognition, like he remembers him fondly, but it's all communicated non-verbally. And then the point of this buildup is to say, John Wayne issues to him a series of orders which are Herculean in magnitude and dangerous by their very nature. And the immediate response from Lieutenant J.G. McConnell is, through his megaphone, Can do, sir! And then the next order, Can do, sir! And John Wayne, when he's finished, nods his head and smiles and kind of shakes his head in admiration and says, Can do. And I place my life beliefs and values on that because it reminds me of my father can do and doesn't always mean will do means you'll die trying and I've given this a very big build up just because I wanted to remind you about the movie or recommend it to you and it's a very melodramatic way to deliver to you the relatively almost ludicrously minor news in light of this story um, that I've had no email. It's poor me. It's like war. You see? What has my generation become? What have I become? I've had no email for 24 hours. And I. It is. it is very dodgy. It returned 20 minutes ago. Uh, it's on and off. But I absolutely have no Twitter. And it means if you've sent me a Twitter or posted a Twitter message since the end of show yesterday, I have not seen it. I will not see it. If you post a tweet today during the show, I am unable to receive. I am unable to see. I am unable to respond. I have alerted Rocky as the uh, commander of our talk round table, the Knights of the Talk Round Table to let our folks know, uh, as I hope you will, uh, because I cannot receive nor answer Twitter uh, until further notice. Not exactly heroic war stuff, but at least I got to tell you the story. This is Jay Severin Severin. on the Blaze Radio Network. 
in the next 19 seconds, you could sell your home. Okay, it's, I mean, it's not going to sell your home, I mean, this, but it, you're going to take a big step toward getting it sold. Go to realestateagentsitrust.com and find an agent selected by my team, a professional who shares your values and speaks the truth. Sell your home fast and for the most money. Get moving at realestateagentsitrust.com. On the Blaze Radio Network. 1-888-900-3393. Today it is the only means by which we can momentarily communicate. We, uh, that, that, we, that we can uh, contemporaneously communicate. 1-888-900-3393. Now, I... I just kind of missed the punchline there earlier. See, if I, 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 I like to fancy myself an exceptional storyteller, a raconteur. Were I as good as I like to be, I would have remembered to tie that up at the end by saying, I like to arrive each day with the ability to fulfill the ambition to be whatever it is you expect of me. Whatever tiny thing it is you rely on me for, entertainment, news, analysis, I like to be able to say to you, not even have to say every day, can do. Can do, sir. Can do, ma'am. And today, I have to show up and say, well, I can't say can do. Because a major means of of uh, this show a major medium of this show is twitter and when it's gone uh, how i recognize that so that was the point of that story and i hope it wasn't a waste because at the very least some of us are going to watch or rewatch one of the best films ever made sit down lock in the movie is three plus hours long it may be nearer four than three i don't know it's hard to know seeing it as i do now you know on television i don't know if any edits have been made and sometimes there are commercial interruptions which make me want to tear my hair out but uh just lock yourselves in for one of the great american films and probably more important for people under 40 to watch over 40 50 it may be nostalgic which is great and it's rewarding cinematically in any case as a, as a piece of art as a movie as a film but for those under 40 this is a moving snapshot of what it was like when your entire culture centered around the dynamics of war. Everything you did, how you looked at life, how long you'd be alive. If you were a man, unless you were 4F, which means rejected by virtue of some disability by the draft board, or in case, uh, I'm sorry, in the event you were rich, well-connected, and you could get assigned to 
you know, the uh, the the uh, public relations staff of a general and fight the war from a desk in Washington. Look, everyone who served, served, but you know what I mean. So other than that, if you were an average Joe, you didn't know if you would live to, you, you graduated from high school or didn't. And if you weren't in high school, which was an awful lot of farm boys, in the states I could name that you could name too. An awful lot of farm boys never got to be farm men. And high school dropouts never got to be college dropouts or even college applicants. Because if you were eligible in any remote respect for the draft, you were drafted. And, and, and most men signed up out of, I'm sorry, did you hear that? Most men rushed to sign up out of patriotic duty. But those who didn't were drafted. And so I only ask you to consider as an exercise, but a very holy one, what it was like to live in a culture, what the ramifications were of daily life for men, women, and children of all ages, in a culture in which young men did not know whether they would live to be a year old, six months older than they were on the day of their high school graduation. And many men did not live to be six months older than they were on the day they graduated from high school. And everyone knew this, and it permeated the culture, it dominated the culture, as did correspondingly patriotism and sense of sacrifice. I remember stories from my grandfather, especially about how people would not drive, not go somewhere to save the gas, how gas was rationed, how people would save tinfoil, how people would save grease, how new cars for the very few who could afford them had wooden bumpers and wooden everything because plastics were not yet really invented and in full use and they were not going to give consumers the metals for their cars that which metals could be used in making a tank uh, you know or otherwise in self-defense so forgive me for that it's hardly folly but i know it's not exactly current events Unless, of course, you buy the enlightened view that we are, we are largely who we were. And we are fated largely to be who we now are. And I don't think there's any doubt about that. Do you? I think anyone who's seen something of life knows especially if you've seen enough of life that you've survived past 40 and you've seen something of life and love and heartbreak and disappointment and success and children or no children or whatever it is you've seen. If you're over 40 and you're listening, you've seen something of life. You know something of the business called life. And you know in the business called life, tomorrow is pledged to no one. You know, there's no such thing as forever. I mean, in the end, it's all about 
love and family. And there really has never been found any other substitute. If I sound a little melancholy, I don't mean to be. We'll turn to politics of one sort or another next. Jay Seven on the Blaze Radio Network. My friends, my partners, uh, just to uh, refresh this very quickly, I have been without email for uh, roughly 20 hours. It comes back intermittently. I've been able to communicate with Rocky. Uh, He was my first message, so he would know this, so he could communicate with you via Twitter, because I have also been without Twitter, and I am totally without Twitter. That is not intermittently working. That is not working at all. So I, I have received, that is to say, I have had no access to any tweets received since early last evening. So I've not, I've not seen or read them. I'm unaware of them. I cannot check them. Uh, and I know, I know, most human beings can from other sources. I cannot, for stupid reasons I don't even understand, but I can only access my Twitter account from my laptop, which has crashed. It's being looked after, one hopes. Uh, I don't know the prognosis, uh, but no Twitter. And so uh, there it is. And I, I, I know Rocky has endeavored already to get that out i want you to know in case i'm unresponsive today uh that's why okay paul from new hampshire before i get rambling and gambling again paul from new hampshire james how, uh, jay how are you james is right actually but i well, well. Thank I know you, but i i realized that was that was the that, that, that was the name your father called you by and i didn't want to presume i could call especially you when i was in trouble <laughs> Yes, exactly. Um, hey, kind of a follow-up. I, yeah, I'm, I'm with you, melancholy uh, nature. <laughs> I'm, I'm freaking in the dumps, and, and I'm pulling my hair out. Are you? Well, is there a reason off, why? Do you know, do you know why? Uh, I mean, well, you may not wish to share well, it here on the radio, but... Well, sure. No, no, that's fine. It's like my father was a... Or my grandfather was in the Navy in World War One. My father, wow. I had older parents. My, my grandparents were born in the 1890s. Um, wow. My father was a Korean War and Vietnam veteran. Um, wow. A uh, senior uh, special forces advisor to the Arven uh, in Vietnam and did that for, for a number of years. Uh, my wow. brother. Again, brother I'm sorry. Retired. I know it's cliched and stupid to say wow, but that's my honest reaction. To, I try to think of all the things that m- means that I could possibly understand, and every one of it is an explosion of wow. Well, we. And my brother is a retired uh, 20-year Marine Corps light colonel. I served eight years as a United States Army standard infantry officer. Thank and, you. Uh, my pleasure. And and I am at this point where my my children, you said 
those of us over 40, I'm in my mid-40s and have children. And I look at my sons, and I, and in my heart, I, I know that I will say to them one day, when they want to follow in the footsteps of their family, I will tell them that it would be my recommendation that they not serve for fear that they will be treated as every other veteran has been treated and has gotten even worse. And I can only foresee what the way things are going. That I.E., I.E., abominably, unbelievably <laughs> poorly, shamefully. Abominably, yes. Yeah. And it just... It, Obama, Obama-ably, yes. Yeah. Yes, yes. So that's, you know, and you were talking, that was, I forget, what was the movie you were talking about, John Wayne? It wasn't for a tour, tour, what was in, it? In Harm's Way. In Harm's Way, okay. I um, could not, could not recommend it to you more highly. And I will, I will watch it. So I'm, I'm on the same boot trying to pull my, my back end out of a funk, but on a thing that is frivolous and frivolity is great when one is in the doldrums. Um, and I know at least from your past uh, broadcast, like, like myself, you have an affinity for, for young ladies from a certain part of the world. And there is a show on Netflix on called Marco Polo. And mm-hmm. if you get a chance to watch it, you will you will enjoy the scenery greatly. I appreciate this recommendation. I am I'm totally ignorant of something. Clearly, uh, I ought to be a student of. Well, you should. I, if you have Netflix and can watch it, watch it. It, it is it is visually tantalizing to say the least. And uh, <laughs> if your child's ride will so allow you. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes, that's an important uh, important regulation, a regulatory footnote. Yes, the regular. But anyways, uh, as always, when I get a chance, I want to try to shout and say hello. I always appreciate you, and and unfortunately. Um, like the Oracle at Adelphi, I fear that your prediction for many years about uh, someone who may become president and then the subsequent hurdles and disasters we will face is probably most likely going to going to come to pass. So, Paul, uh, it, uh, it, is you know, it is. heavy lay the crown, mate. Yes, and well, you know, yeah, we those of us who again have seen a little of life are all good progno- uh, prognosticators because if you've seen yeah. a little bit of life and you know you see what's happening around you and you have that very special supplement of knowing what's happened in the last generation or two and then you you factor that into what's happening now and and then that equals you know that's like a calculus and it equals something it's not that hard to tell where our nation is headed uh, now, right now. And it's often the little things that are the indices of that. Yes, exactly right. The little cultural shifts, the milieu that, that would not go noticed by most, be it vocabulary, be it attitude, attitudes, be it whatever, expectations. It's why um, I continue to tell that story, Paul, of, what, of sitting down with my family to watch whatever it was, the important thing is not what it was. The important thing is that it was on Sunday night in prime time, like 8 o'clock. And so I felt protected. I felt felt that there was a prophylactic in that it was a network, not a cable. It was Sunday night. It was 8 o'clock. And I said, okay, so this is not something I would choose to watch, but... You know, the family wanted to watch it. And so I figured, again, there was a, an implicit prophylactic there. 
and I turn it on, and I see, uh, it doesn't matter whom, it happened to be Miley Cyrus, uh, performing virtual fellatio on a series of men, uh, you know, arrayed about the stage, and, and, and another... You know, truly adult. I don't want to be puritanical, but just sure, you know, purely sure, sure. adult material here. And the fact that there was one or more child in the room, I was so mortified. Yeah, you know, I didn't. I didn't know what to do. And as I as I kind of glanced sideways, figuring out what do I do? What do I say? Please, like, let her be on her cell phone. You know, let her let her yeah. be on her computer doing something, and she didn't see this. And and her eyes were riveted, this is my oldest daughter, her eyes were riveted on me. She was like 13 at the time. And, and as if anticipating, I'm sure she was, my gaze. And Paul looked at me and said, I know you know the punchline probably. And she looked at me and said, twerking, Dada. And nodded her head in a visual equivalent of like patting me on the shoulder and saying, it's okay. You know, it's, <laughs> it's twerking, Dada. And at that moment, I went from, you know, first gear, well, maybe like maybe fourth gear to first gear, you know, and I said, whoa, whoa, you mean she's seen this before and it has a name and she knows the name? When did, where did she learn this? Exactly. Exactly. So, Paul, you fought and you come from a long line of patriots who fought for all the good things. Uh, as John Wayne says in the self-same movie, when he's promoted, he stands, looks at the admiral and says, with your permission, sir, and he offers a toast to our country, our Navy, and all the best things they represent. That is true. Paul, you helped make it true. Uh I just hope we could keep it true. Thank you, Paul from New Hampshire. Our best, uh, Jay. Is a true we'll, we'll, we'll American. Thank you, Paul. Moving forward. Thanks, Jay. Thank Have you. A good one. Thank you, Paul. I'll call again soon. See, I. It's, it's Paul's call is worth the world to me, knowing that there are, and I know there are, but it becomes easier and easier to neglect or doubt—not neglect, but to doubt, to lose faith that there are uh, fellow citizens like Paul. And, uh, oh, sorry, I just banged the microphone there. Didn't mean to do that. And so um, so that raises my morale considerably. Now, again, I have no Twitter. Uh, I, I leave all of this. It's like when Michael Corleone had to flee uh, after uh, killing the crooked cop and Salazzo. And so he left everything in his consigliere's hands. So uh, Rocky is my trusted consigliere and, uh, uh, and, 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 and will be beyond the uh, mechanical repair of, of this stuff. But uh, until then, uh, please, uh, please know that I, 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 I leave my, uh, the gap in my communications here uh, to... Uh, to my trusted consigliere, uh, Rocky, to to try and uh, at least I can be in, in, in touch with him and, and thus with you. All right, when we come back, so you could be warned in case you want to try something else, we are going to presidential politics, but we're making a quick stop 
just to quit like the convenience store. I'm not going to even turn off the engine, but I have to pull in and run in to the Olympic update. Next. Jay Severin on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Jay Severin on the Blaze Radio Network. Best and brightest, one 888 The phone is working. See, some of my vital equipment still works. <clears throat> and one is the phone, one 888 And I, I hope you will call because, uh, indeed, it's the only way to communicate today, given the fact that there, there's, uh, I have no Twitter, my fault, tech problems on my end, working to restore it. Um, I think what we'll do is invite to take the floor Romano from Las Vegas. Hello, Mr. Severin. How are you today, partner? Uh, Jay, please, and well, partner, thank you. Jay, please, it's good speaking with you. Uh, <laughs> I got my... I got my uh, my World War II, I was born in 59, but I worked with a guy who uh, was a sailor in World War II. He was in the, uh, I guess, the uh, Japanese theater, you would call it. But And then I want to tie it theater, uh, yeah. Pacific theater, yeah. Tie it into uh, politics today. He said uh, he was 18 years old, and he listened to a speech by FDR. FDR said, I hate war. Eleanor hates war. And he said six months later, he was out of the ship to Japan. Right. right. Yeah. So, well, uh, at, wanna, at least uh, they, kept half, they kept a third of that promise. Eleanor hates men, and yeah. she was never seen with a man till the day she died. So, Well, uh, I guess because FDR had a difficult time with his erector set, quite possibly. <laughs> <laughs> man, I'll tell you, there are, de- there are legacy Democrats listening who want to place their hands in a constricting circle around your throat because he is a hero. He's a god. FDR Democrats? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Well, uh, what uh, this man, I think his name was Ralph Wharton, said about FDR. You know, he would, uh, Ralph was a sailor. So he used some uh, peppery adjectives to describe what uh, the uh, the magnitude of FDR's uh, allying the lies that he told. As so sailors will. Yes. Yeah, yeah. As sailors will. So if anybody enjoys stand-up comedy, I have never heard a stand-up comic that was as funny as my, my best friend uh, had a house in uh, uh, Mayport, Florida, or very close to Mayport, uh, which was the uh, uh, home for the uh, Sucking 60 from Dixie, the CVA 60, the Pride of the Fleet, the flagship of the 6th, the Saratoga, a bird farm uh, out of uh, Mayport. And, and he had a house, and I got to come visit and stay during breaks in school. And uh, I would either uh, accompany him on some lucky occasions, uh, or he would bring home stories of comments by Navy chiefs 
And I'll tell you, I that's a comedy circuit waiting to be born right there. Yeah, well, he, he was on the ship such a long time that he made his own wedding ring with a gold coin. They would sit at the at the edge, and with a hammer or something, they would tap the coin and go around and around, and then they bore, bored a hole into it, and he made his own wedding ring. He In the married, days when men you. knew what a hammer was. Yes. Yeah. And gold coins were not so rare that you had to pay uh, you know thousands of dollars for them. <laughs> uh, anyway, to tie the... Uh, the uh, great magnitude of lying thing into politics today. You know, I listened to Hillary Clinton saying, Donald Trump said this, you know, words matter, Donald. Yeah, Mrs. Clinton, right. words matter. So please stop lying. Romano, forgive me. Word that comes out of your mouth. Romano, forgive me. We have yeah. about 15 seconds left, and uh, I blabbed uh, a lot of your time away earlier. If you wish to hold or call back, please do. But uh, we'll get you uh, in the opening of the next hour. This is Jay Severin on the Blaze Radio Network. On a technologically disabled day, I'll explain briefly. I am yours truly, Jay Severin. Excelsior. How you doing? I know that you are, and I trust you shall always be, and I suspect you will always be, the best and brightest audience in radio. I am Jay Severin, and like to think I am worthy of you. That's for you to judge. Howdy. We are the Blaze Radio Network, one 900 3393 I shall not give you the Twitter address, e-dress right now, because I don't have it. Uh, I have experienced the one of the worst non-medical conditions any of us uh, in contemporary America can appreciate, and that is my laptop crashed. And for reasons of peculiarity, owing to my retardation on matters technical, I cannot access Twitter except from my own laptop. I cannot through phone, other computer. There are no other means by which I can access Twitter. Thus, I have seen, I may have received, but I have not seen, I've been without the ability to to see any uh, Twitter messages in the last 22 hours going, well, about about 22 hours. I don't have it now. I cannot see them. I cannot thus respond to them. And I feel like I'm doing the show today with one eye and one ear. Of course, if you've seen photographs of me, if you've seen my ears, I've got plenty of ear to go around, even with one of them. 
So uh, I hear you fine. It's just that I cannot see tweets. I also have intermittent email. I have been able to communicate with Commander Rocky, and I know he has. Uh, I don't. I, I don't know to what extent. Uh, uh, I know Rocky will share that with me, or has, and I couldn't get it. But there you go. Uh, I, I can't receive any tweets. So if you wish to communicate directly during the show, uh, it must be by. Uh, via one triple eight nine hundred three three nine three, and if by Twitter, do it by all means. But know that I won't see it until twenty four hours from now, probably at the earliest. And that's being hopeful. All right, here we are. Uh, Romano dropped. By the way, I did not uh, hang him. So uh, thank you, Romano. Uh, here is our, I don't know about your kids, but when when we say we're going somewhere, which usually is ultimately a place that they've demanded to go, if you pull in and try to do any of your own business, they go, you know, crazier than a shite house rat. So, you know, if you, God forbid, you should pull in and and, and even say, I'm leaving the engine running. I don't care what it does to the ozone. I'm going to leave the engine running to persuade you that I'm only going to be in here a second. It does have a marvelous psychological and and tactical use on uh, kids below a certain age, you know, and, and, and stupid adults. If you leave the motor running, they say, all right, this is better. We know, we know he's coming right back because the motor's running. Uh, And, 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 Though you are in neither of those categories, you may be screaming right now as I announce to you that we're I'm just pulling in for a second to the Olympics. I'm going to leave the motor running. Olympic update. <clears throat> I have noticed that the only time I watch beach volleyball is when I play it, which I no longer do, and never did formally. But I think it's a cool sport. And uh, I enjoy watching it once for a maximum of about half an hour every four years in the Olympics. And I generally enjoy it only when it's the women's teams. And because it's the women's teams. And because, and this is key, they play in bikinis. And they are generally in decent shape or better because they are professional volleyball players so it's, it's hard to be a professional volleyball player it's, it's hard to be a professional athlete in most areas of endeavor and look like hillary clinton yeah well that's you know i mean ideally but you could look it's possible i've seen at least one athlete who looks like hillary clinton who was wearing a bikini so uh, I just want to register my complaint that I see, I know there there was a beef a couple of years ago within sport about <clears throat> women wearing bikinis during competition and that it was sexist and that it ought to stop. Well, there's something that's going to stop. There's something that has stopped. Me watching it. There are women's 
volleyball teams who wear their bra, their brassiere, over their T-shirt. I have other things to watch, including chess being played on TV. Non-Olympic chess. So mark me down as a vote for women in bikinis playing beach volleyball because, I don't know if you've noticed, that's what real beach volleyball is. Women who play beach volleyball do not wear a T-shirt first with a a sports bra over the T-shirt. I know it happens, but it's unfortunate when it does. Unless, of course, it's fortunate because they need to be covered up. But in most cases, as Avor said, they don't at all need to be covered up. And I ain't watching if they're wearing burkas, formally or otherwise. I just wanted to mention that. Now, also, Olympic update. Today, Fiji. I love Fiji. Today, Fiji, little teeny tiny Fiji, played uh, men's sevens rugby against Japan. Japan is damned good, by the way. You you might not think it because the, the men are generally of diminutive stature, but not all of them. They had samurai here. The, the, Japan is, is formidable. Anyway, Fiji played Japan. And you know what? For one of the rare occasions in the modern-day Olympics, I did not need a program to know which players were on which team. I knew I could look at the television screen and say, oh, I'll bet he's on the Japanese side. Oh, I'll bet he's on the Fijian side. Which, as I've expressed as a bias, personal bias, I like. I like it. I I like... It. The irony here is the criticism I receive when I mention this is from people who say, well, you're a bigot. You know, you're a, you're a nativist. You're a racist. And frankly... I think it's the reverse. It's the it's exactly the diversity of human beings that I so enjoy. When I see the parade of athletes coming in the Olympics, I like it when I I do not like it when the team from Norway and Afghanistan are interchangeable. And both look like the team from Iraq. I, I, you know, it, it, forgive me, but I, I like the fact that the Norwegians look like Norwegians and that the Nigerians look like Nigerians and the Fijians look like Fijians. I don't like it when I'm watching a sport and they say, here comes the team from Sweden and let's let's say it's a footy a soccer team and they come out and 80% of the players are african that's not that's not the swedish team it may be the swedish team but it's not the the reason most of us who did grow up with the olympics and like it grow grow up with it and, and fall in love with it exactly because of the diversity because when 
when when Norway comes out with their flag, they look different than Iraq. That looks different than maybe uh, who knows? I mean, it is the difference. Get it? Difference, diversity. That's all I'm lobbying for. I know I'm arguing against the future, but that's sometimes what we must do. Jay Severin on the Blaze Radio Network. Jay Severin Show on the Blaze Radio Network. With my partners, the best and brightest, 1-888-900-3393. Okay, I've left the engine running, but I'm still in the convenience store, otherwise known as the Olympic Update. Uh, Enough mit der swimming, please. Enough mit der swimming. How many different swimming events... Can there be? I mean, I know I'm learning the answer because I don't really enjoy it. I I enjoy the 50-meter races. The length of of an Olympic pool is 50 meters. Now, as the world increasingly recognizes metrics, uh, though very slowly and ultimately maybe rejects it, uh, as a former climber, uh, everything was in metrics, and so I pretty much had to orient to it. And it, the only thing to know, if you, I mean, if you don't know it, is that a meter is three feet. A meter is a yard. Okay? So, you know, that's all you need to know. A meter is three feet. And once you get used to thinking in those terms, it's, it's really quite easy. And I don't know any of the rest, and I don't care, and I'm not going to learn it. But... The length of an Olympic swimming pool regulation is 50 meters, 150 feet. Okay. I like the 50-meter events because they're over quickly. They're exciting, and I can't watch swimming when they go, when they do, like, eight laps. I'd lose interest. It, you know, it ain't bullfighting. It ain't, it ain't the two-minute drill in football in a playoff game. I'm sorry. It just all looks the same to me after... A lap or two. I know that it's exquisitely trained, top-level Olympic humans, athletes doing this, but sorry, that doesn't excite me based on those grounds alone. So enough Mitter long and multi-category uh, uh, swimming, please. Because the answer is, how many different swimming events can there be? The answer is, take any stroke and multiply it by 10 different lengths. Okay, the butterfly. You have the 50-meter butterfly. You have the 100-meter butterfly. You have the 150-meter butterfly. You have the 200-meter butterfly. You have the 250-meter butterfly, and so on. It never ends. And people love it because I don't know why. But I know that it's always on, and that means that's their best TV ratings, which means most Americans are watching it, uh, it meaning the swimming. Could we just make a constitutional change or consider one where all swimming events are 50 meters? Maybe, maybe, in some cases, 100, okay? Down and back. 
That would be the max. Because this thing is, the Olympics, in terms of the television, has become uh, a swim meet almost all the time. And I don't want, I don't want that. I want rugby. I want the classic decathlon derivative sports. By way of example, for instance, I don't find archery exciting, but I watched 20 minutes of it today, and I'll watch portions of it. Why? Because I have such deep respect for archery or any sport that is quintessentially ancient in its human as well as Olympic roots. Archery? How old, how traditional is a human firing an arrow for in order to get dinner or at another human in war? That is tradition. That is classic. That is Olympic. When you watch the decathlon sports, someone throwing a spear, how old is that? Someone throwing a discus, shot put, high jump, you know, the speed runs. How old is that? How human is that? How Olympic is that? That's different. The 100-yard dash. Who doesn't find that exciting? I don't like running. I don't like track meets. But the things that are quintessentially human, thus Olympic. Shooting an arrow, throwing a spear, running. And I know, I know, swimming is part of that. But stop, Mitter, stop, Mitter, 75 different events for every stroke of swimming. All right, P.S. Although I appreciate it interferes with my homework and quite possibly yours, which is watching Brett Baer's report at 6 p.m. Eastern, which is, by the way, the only true national news broadcast left on television. What's it, National Report with Brett Baer? Brett Baer's 6 p.m. Eastern show on Fox is the best news show on television, and it, it that is an undiminished distinction, uh, even though it is the only true news show left on television. It is, for those of us who grew up, with national network news shows each evening, the evening news, this is what Brett Bear's show is. It's excellent. And the best part of it, generally, almost without exception, is when they have the panel. When you've got uh, Charles Krauthammer and George Will and a couple of other people, you got some dogs on there. Uh, sorry, guys. When you do have some dogs on there that have no idea what they're talking about. But... Generally speaking, the panel is people who really know what they're talking about. And my family knows, don't try to talk to Daddy uh, during the show in general, but certainly don't try to talk to Daddy when the panel is on. Because these are people from whom I learn, and I, I, I recommend it to you. So even though I'm aware that uh, anything at 6 p.m. could go contrary to your homework and mine, uh and our acquisition of current events at 6 p.m., one hour, 32 minutes from now, Eastern Time, 
is the gold medal match in rugby. Men's sevens rugby. Great Britain versus Fiji. Fiji, despite being renowned as the best in the world at rugby, has never won a medal of any kind in the Olympics. And apparently the entire nation is gaga over the Olympics for the first time, owing to the prospect of their rugby team. And they've already won a medal. It's just waiting now to see which kind of medal they win. They are, as a nation, a single beating heart directed at one thing, the gold medal. And tonight at 6 Eastern, they play the most worthy possible opponent, England. There will always be in England. I hope there will. Uh, you have heard, I believe, the old expression, and I hope I have this right, not the re- not reversed. Soccer is a gentleman's game played by hooligans, whereas rugby is a hooligan's game played by gentlemen. Do I have that right? I hope so, and I hope you watch me, and despite my native attraction to England, root for Fiji. Jay Severin, the Blaze Radio Network. Jay Severin on the Blaze Radio Network. Partners, B and I were just speaking about something. It, it, uh, I, I was, and I can't believe this. This was only you know five, six years ago. I was climbing mountains, uh, Iceland, all over Europe, uh, here in the Rockies, and and now I'm a wreck, but uh, mostly as a result of injuries and surgeries sustained, because that's what you have to give up if you're you know you can't do it forever. Uh, some people do it longer than others. I admire them. The libertarian presidential candidate, Gary Johnson, has summited Everest. And as those of us who have climbed, kills me to have to insert that. You know, I want to say those of us who climb, I can't say that anymore. Those of us who have climbed and know what it is, like anything else, whatever sport, whatever physical endeavor, endeavor any, any anything, that you know especially, you know, well, and you see other people who do it especially better, and you have respect for them. It's very hard for me to dismiss. I I know this has nothing to do with his politics, but it's very hard for me to dismiss Gary Johnson as a total nut, even though everything about him wants me to dismiss him as a nut. The fact that he got up and down Everest, uh, and I mentioned down for two reasons. The kill rate on summoning Everest is, I think, about one in seven. Something like one in seven people who attempt Everest dies. And whatever the number is, it's harrowing. And it's changed from year to year as as, as we go uh, forward in years that that ratio becomes a little, slightly less harrowing because the combination of experience, technology, uh, and mountaineering leadership experience all adds up to lowering, I'm sorry, increasing the odds for climbers, even amateurs, to uh, to summit Everest. But still, it has a wicked kill rate. And whatever the kill rate is, I think one in seven is right. Maybe it's one in nine. But whatever it is, most, the vast majority of people who, perish 
summiting Everest. Die coming down. A, a famous guide once said, any damn fool can get up this mountain. What, what takes all the skills and perseverance and luck is getting back down. And if you think about it, it makes total sense. Whether or not you've you know, ever climbed or, uh, a boulder you know, or a hill in your backyard, coming down is much harder, much more daunting, much more taxing on the body, much more unpredictable. Everything's working against you. Body, your body, gravity, you know, your joints, everything. And in this case, you know, you slip going up, it's okay. It's not okay, but it's not advised, but it's, you know, you, you slip going up, you miss a, a hand or a foothold, you'll probably be all right. You slip going down, chances are it's not going to, chances are it's going to end in major tears. Anyway, so Gary Johnson's gone up and down Everest. By the way, other mountains, you know, have, have brutal kill rates. K2 or uh, Annapurna. Both have kill rates, I think, of like one in four. Think about that one. Think about that one. So there are mountains technically, there are peaks technically more difficult than Everest. But Everest just maintains that, you know, that that, that certain aura about it. Anyway, uh, okay, we're pulling out of the convenience store. Uh, and I want to say about politics, bear this in mind, would you? The key universal political understanding that totally unlocks any mystery of American politics. It's no, American politics is no mystery. It just bears a little attention and a little experience. The, the key that unlocks American politics and explains almost all of it is this. When you see or hear any Democrat say or do anything, simply ask yourself, okay, wait a second, okay, how does this cause us to rely more on government? Because I promise you, and this is an easy test, you can try it at home, you know the things that say don't try this, do not attempt at home? I'm telling you, attempt this at home. It's the best favor you could do your family, your children. Attempt this at home. Do. Ask yourself, anything that Hillary Clinton, for example, is proposing, play it out. You don't need to know about politics or government. Hillary Clinton says, we're going to build the most public works projects since World War II. That sounds great. How are we going to do that? What are we going to build? How are we going to do that? And the answers to, to a child become clear. What we're going to do, what she's proposing is, you know, Obama's, uh, what the hell was it called? Uh, you know, the Rejuvenation Project. It'll come to me. Uh, wait, I have, I have down here. Wait a second. Uh, all right, I'll have to wait. I just can't, it, the word is not coming to me. But the idea is enormous public projects. 
for things that don't matter. I mean, would we like to have a new bridge somewhere? Sure. Do we necessarily need a new bridge there? No, of course not. How is it that we will build more public jobs and projects than any time since World War II? And the answer is raising your taxes. It's the only physical possible answer. There it is. You know, how does this cost me money and or personal freedom? How does this cause us to rely more heavily on federal government? When you apply that test, you understand immediately what Democrats are saying. We're going to take money from people who still earn it, and we're going to redistribute it to people who don't. And and the veil we're going to use over this is massive, wasteful, stupid public works project. You'll have your answer every time flawlessly. I mean, you'd never know it by listening to Hillary's speeches. Just today, she delivered one, I listened to it, which sounded as though it had been pirated directly from Trump's briefcase. It was all about jobs, but different kinds of jobs. She means something different. When Trump says jobs, he means boosting the private sector. He means private enterprise, lower taxes, helping small business, stopping the death tax by which people lose their family businesses, their family farms. People die and there's immediately the IRS comes and says, you owe 50% of everything we say this is worth. By the way, try selling it for that estimated price. It's a fantasy. It's a pornographic fantasy. But the IRS comes in, no one can challenge them, and they come in and say, your family potato farm, which grosses a million dollars a year, from which in the last 10 years you have averaged, after taxes, a profit of $200,000, split by five different members of the family. Okay, we're not talking about Archer's Daniels Midland here. We're talking about family farmers. When they die, the IRS comes in and says, this is what your farm is worth in fantasy land, and we want 50% of that value right now. Not we just want it. We want it right now. And if you can't give us to it, give it to us right now, we're going to take your home, your bed, your car, your land, your potatoes, your farm, your lives. We're going to take it. It's called the death tax. Trump wants to eliminate it. Clinton doesn't. Trump wants to rejuvenate small businesses by cutting the taxes they pay on profits from, what is it, 30, 35% to 15. This is what, this is what builds America. I don't know economics, but I know this. I know that when the hardware store in my town and yours, I know that when the deli in my town and yours, I know that when the pizzeria in my town and yours, I know when the auto body shop in my town and yours, at the end of the year, 
has its taxes cut from 35 to 15% or 30% to 15%. You know what it means? It means that they sit around the kitchen table and say, you know what? I think we can hire someone next year. And if we can hire someone next year, we can take on more work. And if we take on more work, we'll grow. And and the next year, we could probably hire two people. And we can afford to do it and still eat. That's what Trump is talking about. Hillary's been stealing his words and ideas. I mean it. You should pay attention to... I'm sorry, I don't mean to preach. Pay attention to this. This is what she's doing. And... It's the stimulus. That's what I was losing. I was losing. It's the stimulus package redux. Hundreds of billions of dollars funneled to the unions for pet projects in powerful uh, districts of congressmen, all for make work temporary projects that do not mean careers. They don't mean solid, good paying jobs. They change nothing except they deflate your income and the prospects of your family. This is Jay Febron on the Blaze Radio Network. The Jay Severin Show. Partners, I'd like to share with you something I probably, uh, and I will, mention tomorrow when ideally we'll be back in full communication with Twitter and everything else. But I'd like you to think about these things, and they probably bear some thought. I certainly haven't had time to think about them yet. Although I did have some initial reactions, I think they bear thought. This is, uh, I'll put under the category of political trivia Hardly trivial. I heard, I won't say learned, because I can verify neither of the claims I'm about to share with you. I heard them on national television, uh, spouted by experts, so-called, but I want to be clear that I... I cannot verify them. I'm reporting to you what they're reporting. The second thing, note to Bene, note well, is that there is no insinuation whatever by me that these two facts are in any way related. Okay? Those those two qualifiers having been registered. Here is number one. 51, 5-1, 51% of Americans make less than $30,000 a year. Half of all Americans make less than $30,000 a year. Number two, of Everyone who will vote on Election Day, one out of three will be a person of color. Now, again, 
I am certainly not expert in matter number one. You know, I, it would take probably some grounding in economics to be able to say with any authority uh, what what are the ramifications, what are the implications of the fact that now fewer than half of all Americans make $30,000 a year. I, I See, I can't tell you, so it bears a special thought on my part. But I know it's profound. I know there is profundity in this pile of manure. I mean it. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not kidding. It's profound. I just have to figure out how. Number two, that one in three, one in three voters on election day will be a person of color. On that, I do feel expertly qualified uh, to comment. And uh, tomorrow I shall. I will for the moment say that, like number one above, I promise you that it is profound. It is, it is a sea change in America. Because the $30,000 figure, like number one, you can make, you know, you can, that, that varies with the era. $30,000 would have been a lot of money, you know, during World War II. So that number goes up and down. But right now, at any given moment, what it represents, it's profound. And the second one, one in three voters, a person of color, profound. Hey, stick with me. Thanks. Tomorrow. The Jay Severin Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network.